Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Charlotte. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demyth Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we swear to tell the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we go on trial with Laura Shepperson. A woman like this can you embrace? Can you be left in the same chamber with her and not feel fear and enjoy the slumber of the silent night? Surely she must have forced you to bear the yoke just as she forced the bulls and has you subdued by the same means she uses with fierce dragons. Add that she wishes her name writ in the record of your own and your hero's exploits and the wife obscures the glory of the husband. Hi, Laura. We have been so excited about this book ever since we heard that it was being written. We love a problematic Greek heroine. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited about this. Please introduce yourself for our listeners. Hi, my name is Laura Shepperson. I'm the debut author of the novel, which is titled The Heroines in the UK and the Commonwealth and Fedra in the US. And thank you very much for having me on your podcast. And what kind of books do you like to read? So I, I read very widely. Um, I enjoy literary fiction, historical fiction, nonfiction. I like to read biographies. I read crime fiction. And of course, I love reading both ancient texts and retellings about uh, classical society, Greece and Rome. It kind of makes sense that you like crime fiction, actually yes. looking at this. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's a bit of a crossover, isn't it? It's a crossover that we didn't know that we needed. I think. Fair. Do you have a favourite story in Greek mythology that isn't related to Phaedra? Yes. I think my favourite is probably the story of Oedipus. And this is the next bit isn't going to surprise you. When I was at university, my lecturer described it as both the first detective story and a mystery that isn't actually meant to be solved. And I think that's a really compelling combination. The detective story that isn't supposed to be solved. I can agree with that. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a fair assessment of the story. This is probably the most obvious question that you'll ever be asked. Because ever since studying Hippolytus in sixth form, I've been obsessed with Phaedra. But what drew you to her story and wanting to tell her story in such a unique way? So it was it was a very similar experience to yours because I studied the story at university and it was the realization that Phaedra was both the sister of the Minotaur and the wife of Theseus, killer of the Minotaur. And those two stories are never linked. And particularly when you read Hippolytus, there's, there's never this question of why does she behave in such a way? Why does she effectively destroy Theseus's family? Why does nobody ever says, oh, perhaps it's got something to do with the fact that she was the sister of, of the Minotaur and Theseus effectively destroyed her family. So, so that's, so that was, that was what drew me to it. And it was, I was at university a, a very, very long time ago, but it's, it's always kind of been bubbling in the back of my mind. This, this question about this, this, um, the way the, the way we think of the myths as being these separate, this is the myth of Theseus and Ariadne. This is the myth of, Phaedra and, um, and Hippolytus, but we never actually look at the way that they, they link together. Um, and so that, that was what drew, drew me to it and wanting to tell that, this story in, um, in the way that I did. Mm, I, would, I would agree with you. I don't think when I was studying it, we ever knew that link. Mm. I don't think we ever knew that she was the sister of. Mm. Yeah, it's, we, we compartmentalize these stories in our minds. Um, and I think again that it, it comes back from the the way we study them and the way that um, the way Greek myths are presented, especially in sort of the compilation books that children read. You know, you have you have the the heading at the top of the page, and this is the myth. When in, when in reality, all of all of the myths, it's a it's a big it's a big jumble, and everything overlaps. And I I wanted to draw a lot of that overlap out. I think coming into it as an adult, where you mm -hmm. kind of read what you want for fun that's one of the fascinating things about it that there is so much overlap mm. yeah I agree but I think I'm going to one-up you here Charlotte with obvious questions so <laughs> why in the UK is the book called The Heroines and in the US it's called Phaedra I have to get 
give credit here to my my editor, uh, Rosanna Forte, because she came up with the title of The Heroines, which I absolutely love. Um, it was one of those moments where she said, and could we think about calling it this? And it was perfect. And everything just fell into place, I think. So firstly, it's it's a translation of, um, I'm sorry, my, my pronunciation is appalling. It's a translation of Ovid's um, Heroids, uh, which is one of the classical sources that sets out the story. And as with Ovid, the heroines is an examination of what it means to be a hero and what it means to be a heroine in this society where men are exalted and women are mistreated. It's not just Fedra's story, it's the story of all the women that are affected. So that's that's why it's called The Heroines in, in the UK. And I, I think it's a fantastic title. The it US, uh, the big, it's a different it's a different market. They needed a different title to um, to appeal to their different market. But I do love The Heroines as a title. I've heard someone, I can't remember who it was, but we had another author tell us that in the US, they need the name to be a bit more obvious. Mm. Yes. Ovid was very progressive for his time writing that. Yes. Yes, well, look where he ended up. <laughs> Does the fact that people love these stories help or hinder you when you're writing and you're trying to be creative? Neither, because when I'm when I'm writing, it's it's just between the text and me. So I'm not thinking about how it's going to how it's going to go out into the wider world. Um, but what I would say is that it really helps that I love the stories and, and I want to look deeper into them and explore the potential of these characters. So so that's that's a big help. And before we get into the actual book itself, can we talk about the cover? Because Hello Gold Foiling <laughs> and the cover is beautiful. It is so beautiful. And the team at Sphere has done an amazing job. Um, I, I thought the proofs were wonderful. I was like, oh, these, you know, this is the most beautiful book I've ever seen. And then I saw the final hardback and I was like, oh, oh, this is this is something else. And I should say as well, my, my US cover is beautiful too. I love I love both of them. I've been really very, very spoiled. Who were your cover designers? Oh, that is a good question. And I know her first name is Hannah and I cannot remember her surname. Did you say this is your first novel? Yes. Imagine, Lauren, opening that and your first novel looks as beautiful as this. <laughs> like, you're going to have to, I don't know what you're going to do to top it for the next one. <laughs> no, I, I honestly don't know. Don't know. Actually, what I was, what I have in my mind is that I'd, I'd like, I'd like them to sort of match, you know, mm. so they sit there and look beautiful together on, on someone's shelf. That's something I really like about Jennifer Saint's covers and not just mm. because we love the cover designer anyway, but they look so good individually, but together you can tell they kind of go together. Yes. That, and those were exactly the covers that I had in mind when I said it, that some, something where they just sit, sit beautifully on the shelf and you're like, yep, that, that's a, that's a set. And that's a Laura Shepperson book. Yes. In Athens, crowds flock to witness the most shocking trial of the ancient world. The royal family is mirrored in scandal. Phaedra, young bride of King Theseus, has accused her stepson Hippolytus of rape. He's a prince, a talented horseman, a promising young man with his whole life ahead of him. And she's a young and neglected wife, the youngest in a long line of Cretan women with less than savoury reputations. The men of Athens must determine the truth, who is guilty and who is innocent. But the women know the truth is a slippery thing. After all, this is the age of heroes and the age of monsters. There are two sides to every story and theirs has gone unheard. Until now. I already know the answer to this because you told me, but for the purposes of our listeners, why when Greek myths are filled with stories of the gods being all up in everyone's business, are there no actual gods active in your story? Where I would start is, it's not that the gods don't exist. The gods are not characters and they don't intervene. As you say, they're not, they're not active in the story. The characters believe in the gods to a greater or lesser extent. And when I was reading about fifth century Greece, um, which, is, which is, I think, the time period most of us have in our minds, whether we, whether we realise it or not, when we think about classical Greece, 
I was struck by we have these how we have these amazing thinkers, uh, some of the most intelligent men that the world has ever produced. We've got Socrates, we've got Plato, we've got Aristotle. They're doing really amazing things with philosophy. Um, and then at the same time, they're, they're believing in this religion that includes stories about gods turning into bulls and seducing women. And so my, my initial thought there was that maybe by then people just didn't believe, but they did believe. They believed in the gods, but at the same time, they thought that some of the myths and stories about them were, were just stories. They weren't to be taken literally. So, so more, like, more like parables, more like um, ideas, myths, basically. So that's what I wanted to depict. I wanted to depict this society that has this religion. It believes in gods. It believes that kings and heroes in particular are descended from gods. And yet the gods themselves don't actually appear to anyone. Again, sort of, I'd compare that to something like the 16th century when we had the divine right of kings was a really important aspect of political society. But nobody believed that, that God was going to turn up and actually say, you know, James I is my, is my anointed representative here on earth. He just, he just was. Of course, people are people. So in, in, my, in my novel, some people will be very devout. They believe fervently. They um, pour all their libations. Well, other people are less devout, are more cynical, and take advantage of others' belief. Again, just just as you would expect in any in any microcosm of a society. One thing that neither of us were expecting, but was brilliant about the book, was the sheer amount of point of views, and it it really worked quite well, and it felt perfect for a story that's different. You know, it has different people's stories and agendas in it points of it felt very gossipy and it just it really worked what made you decide to go in this direction rather than Phaedra's solely the story is the story of of the heroines and I wanted to tell more than just the princess at the center of the myth I also wanted to incorporate aspects of Greek tragedy so we have we have the night chorus the ordinary working women who are telling snippets of their story and as I was saying earlier, I was I was really interested in the overlaps between the myth. So so by having the different points of view, I wanted to tie some of those stories together. So, for instance, the myths where Heracles and Theseus travel together, the fact that Medea is supposed to fee, flee to Athens. By bringing together lots of different points of view, I wanted to to show more more than just Phaedra's story, the the broader the broader picture. And how did you decide on? these particular women like this nice chorus was it purely because it was the heroines um well my main my main priority was giving voices to women okay and at the time at the time I was writing it me too was was really at its at its peak so there was a there was a lot of of stories in the press and again one of one of the things that I was that I was struck by was that that women women always find a way to communicate to other women if there's if there's something that you should be wary of you know you you'll always you don't even know how you know but you'll you'll know if if one of your professors at university is someone that you might not want to see by yourself you know women always always manage to communicate so that was that was my my purpose for the night chorus was was to to give voice to those women to have that that undercurrent. And as, as I say, of course, choruses are a, a big part of, of Greek tragedy anyway. I should, I should say that there is one male point of view, but he is not a historical character. He's, he's made up. And I wanted to use his story to just pull the threads together. And we open the book with a bard and he very openly says to us that his story isn't the truth. And actually he doesn't know what the truth is. How do you go about writing a story about a mythological character when there are so many conflicting stories about her? Uh, if you look at Seneca's play, which is based on the Euripides, they do different things with the same story. I see this differently. I see it that the Greek tragedies and the Greek myths, it's not canon. The tragedians are not authorities on the myth. The myths were already centuries old by the time that Euripides was writing his play. 
And there were many, many more playwrights whose work just hasn't survived. So rather than seeing it as being limiting, I see it as offering potential that there's there's so many directions that you can take. There's so many options that you can that you can choose from. There's no there's no wrong answers. It's so sad to think about all of the great plays that have been lost. Oh, it's horrible. Really horrible. Such a loss. Page two to 15 of the book. I got real Game of Thrones vibes here. And do you, I don't know if you watch the show, but it's the bit in the show where Cersei does her walk of atonement and all of the peasants are throwing things at her. They're insulting her. It's like, I guess, the shame scene. The idea that peasants would have just treated Pasiphae with the same kind of lack of respect, just it makes me kind of sad. And Phaedra even says that she herself has come to the wrong conclusion about her mother's words. She feels that they've come from a place of shame. So I have to say, you're, you're not the first person to say, to say this and to, to see the, um, the, the Game of Thrones idea. I have to admit, I haven't actually watched that much of it myself. But thinking about it, I think it's just one of those ideas that persist, the way powerful women are treated and the need to bring powerful women down a level. You should watch that scene. <laughs> yes. Um, sounds, it, it, it sounds very harrowing, but yes. She's not a very nice person. Ah, there we go. <laughs> the story felt in parts, you know, as part trial. It felt almost like a play in some areas. Why did you decide to frame it in this way? So I'd say, I'd say again, both, both elements were a nod to, to the original sources. So, um, so the original sources that we have are our plays, um, Euripides and Seneca in particular. And it was it was always clear to me that if this was going to be a, a he said, she said story, we'd need to have some sort of a trial. And Plutarch credits Theseus with being the father of democracy. So I sort of extrapolated from that. What would that what would that mean? And the Greeks were famous for their their democratic court system, the, the system that condemned Socrates to death. So I just sort of lifted the system and put it a lot earlier. And I think, yeah, I think you've done it really well. There's definitely a nod to, to that feel. And then obviously with the trial, it does say that, you know, Theseus wants to be this man of democracy. So it means he has to go through with it. Mm. Yes. And one thing very early on, I sent a text to Lauren about. So I like these nods that you've done to the classics but I think you've done them in a in a way that if someone doesn't know them they don't feel overwhelmed oh thank you and I'd like to hope that definitely that um I love the classics but you know not not everybody has has had the opportunity to study them and I don't I don't want as a as a discipline I don't want it to be intimidating to people I think we should be open and welcoming and and I think you've done it well, you know, the I think you've written it as the rosy fingers of dawn, which obviously is a nod to rosy finger dawn epithet. Yeah. And it's a subtle touch. So obviously people like myself and Lauren would pick up on that. But then it's still enjoyable if someone hasn't read the Iliad or the Odyssey or doesn't know about that. They can still enjoy it and think, oh, that's quite a nice image. Yes. Thank you. I mean, there is there is some very beautiful language in in Homer. And we really liked that you put in some details to flesh Phaedra out, like her real interest in painting and her questioning why a woman would sew when she could find joy in painting. And what gave you the idea for this to be a hobby of hers? Uh, so it, it was the murals at, um, at Knossos. So Knossos is famous for having these beautiful murals for, for being a, a really very advanced palace. So I thought it would make sense that a young woman in that society who wanted to expand her horizons would be interested in this painting that she saw all around her. Can we talk about Theseus? Because we're not in spoilers yet, so I don't want you to give too much away. And I, but I don't think this is a spoiler to say you haven't been overly kind to his character. You've... You've written him as quite sly and there's a scene where he's talking to Pasiphae and Phaedra notices that he's responding, but he slightly changes the wording. I don't think he's terrible. Um, obviously, he does some terrible things, but no spoilers. But I think he's I think he is a very clever person. And if he really is the father of democracy, then we all owe him a, a huge debt of gratitude. 
But what I what I saw in, in Theseus is that when you get somebody who's very single-minded and goes on to create something that is that is bigger than themselves, those people aren't always the nicest or kindest people to be around. And they're not, when you talk to their families, their their families often don't have the the best the best stories because they're because they're so focused on this on this thing on this ideal i mean i th i think you see that in a lot of the the biographies of children of famous people or people who created amazing um inventions so so that's that's where i see theseus coming from i do think he's a, he's probably one of the most intelligent uh, characters and i would i would also say no spoilers but there is there is a particular passage that theseus um theseus has that i think comes actually comes very much from my heart so i think he's i think he's a i think he's a complicated character i don't think he's an out and out villain i've never considered him like that but you're right if he did create this thing that is so much bigger than him oh yeah i don't really know how I, how to say what i'm thinking like then it does take an element of not really caring about the little details and everyday life with some mm. people. And it's almost like the way he responds to Pasiphae is like a lawyer to mm. get what he wants. And he, he manipulates it in a subtle way that isn't necessarily malicious, but it's just getting what he needs. And at that, at that point, he needs... Mm. safety he needs somewhere to stay and he needs to not be attacked while he's asleep yes this is the point of the episode where we head off to the courtroom and go to trial so if you hadn't read the book it's strongly advised as all of the evidence will be out on the table one thing that i always kind of believed from myth is that theseus forgot to change the cells but you wrote it as if it was a deliberate thing and I totally bought it and thinking about it why actually would Theseus care about one old guy who may be partially responsible for his existence because he wasn't an active parent and Theseus doesn't know him and if you consider all of the dodgy stuff that Theseus has done especially up to this point before he becomes the father of democracy I, I can totally believe that it was deliberate yeah, I, I wanted that to be an early sign of the the kind of man that he is. That that he is, as we as we just said, he's more interested in getting results. I mean, it always it it because again, it it seems such a stupid thing to do, really. Like you you set up this whole this whole signal thing, and then you just go and forget. It's, why would you do that? But he could he could have forgotten. So there is an argument there yes. that he could have, and I think that's what's clever about it. Yes, and um, I was actually I was actually talking to my husband, who's only read the book for the first time um, this last week. What um, I was I was talking to him about it as well, and and he said, "What if he just hadn't done anything?" I was like, "Well, yeah, that's that's also true that you don't he didn't know that necessarily that Aegeus was going to go and respond the way he did, but but if he if he hadn't done anything at all, then again it would have just been a mistake. Whoops, forgot to change the sails." Never mind. How was your husband only just read it? Because probably because of because of me, because um well I I wouldn't I didn't let him have a version all the time. It was in draft. And then the proofs arrived and I was like, oh no, it's sort of still in draft. And then um and then finally my my husband, um, he loves to listen to audiobooks. He's always got an audiobook on the go. And I was hearing such amazing things about the US audiobook. So I said, um, I think you're going to have to listen to this for me because I hear such fantastic things about it and I want to know if it's true. So there we go. That's that's what he got. Does it feel more real now that he's listened to it? Um, yes, I think so. Yes. And um, uh, uh, my mum's read it as well now. I think those are probably the two opinions that I cared most about. So now that they've both come back and 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 they've both said, you know, this is this is fine, this is good. Um, I think I can sort of breathe a lot more easily. Well, I'm pleased that they they said that to you because it is a fantastic book. Thank you. Back to Theseus. There's 
references in the book to the interpretation of the word hero. Mm. In your opinion, how do you think the ancient interpretation of hero is different to today's? So I think today I'd like to hope that we see a hero as somebody who helps other people. Um, we'll speak of doctors and nurses as being heroes, even in a, a Marvel superhero film. We, we expect our superheroes to at least try and save save the world, save the planet, even if their, their motives or their methods are questioned. Um, but an ancient hero was somebody who was descended from a god or favored by a god or a goddess, which made him a bit stronger or a bit smarter than everyone else. So he went on quests or he fought wars or he outwitted people and he didn't have to actually help anyone to be considered a hero. And there's a part of the book which made me kind of giggle probably for the wrong reasons where Fedra says to herself she doesn't need to know how many foreign queens and princesses that Theseus had carried off exactly um I don't know what what do you mean by the wrong reasons I don't know just like it made me giggle but obviously he's carried them off probably against their will most likely against their will so I probably should be laughing at that but it was just I think it's the way that it was put yeah, I, I think I think I'm with you actually. I think it is a little bit uh, it, it is a little bit perhaps facetious that for in terms of the stories behind these. But she's 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 very young and she's just kind of glossing it over. And she still, of course, at this point, she still believes that um, that even though he carried off Ariadne, um, Ariadne did all right by it. Mm. She doesn't yet know what happened to her. I've got a few questions for you that that my whole spiel is so long, so I'm really sorry. But Hippolytus makes a comment to Phaedra that his mother was as committed to the goddess Artemis as he is. And we know that his mother was an Amazon. It doesn't stop him raping Phaedra, which I can say now we're in spoilers. And I certainly don't know of any stories where Artemis took pity on a woman who'd been raped, like the story of Callisto. Quite possibly that was rape. And it didn't stop Artemis from turning her back on her friend and pretty much the goddesses don't care even the virgin ones who should feel bad for the girls who have had their innocence taken away from them the point that Hippolytus makes just seems kind of moot to me so I I agree the goddesses don't particularly care about rape and it it doesn't it doesn't even quite seem to be a a proper concept um, in some of the myths but what I think Artemis does care about is chastity so she turns her back on Callisto because because Callisto is not chaste anymore. You know, it's all very it's very victim blaming. And in in Euripides' play Hippolytus, Hippolytus is clear that he can't have raped Phaedra not not because this would be a bad thing to do, but because he worships Artemis, he remains chaste. He is he is pure in himself. It's not about whether he'd hurt someone or or didn't hurt someone. It's about the fact that he's he's continuing his worship of the goddess. I don't I don't think he thinks that Artemis would particularly punish him for for being a rapist um, any more than she would punish him for being a philanderer. And there's a bit there's a line where Hippolytus was obtained in murky circumstances. So i.e. Theseus forced himself on his mother and we see history repeating itself with Hippolytus. Would you have thought that growing up in a community of women, Hippolytus would have been less likely to act in this manner? In my version, Hippolytus stays with Theseus and, and it's it's very much Theseus and Theseus and his boy. So I would I would definitely hope that if, if Hippolytus had grown up in a community of women, um, that he would have been a very different person and he would have been respectful of all women instead of as he is, he's he's just he just venerates his his dead mother and and one particular goddess who are who aren't even they're not real women to him they're just they're just ideas but then thinking about it i don't think the amazons kept any boys anyway mm. so i don't think he would he would ever have had really that opportunity to um to grow up with, with a with a more balanced um upbringing and that's a shame mm, definitely he's very young so in, to, to some extent, it's again, it's not it's not his he's, he's a product. He is a product of his upbringing. On page 252 and three, this is during the trial. 
think one of Hippolytus's friends makes the point that she can't prove anything and the point that after all he's done for Athens he won the horse race three times running and it sort of made me think about what's going on right now we've got the Mason Greenwood case and it's just been dropped and last January he was suspended for various charges including attempted rape and like in the last week a spokesperson for the CPS has said in this case, a, contrib- a combination of the withdrawal of key witnesses and new material that came to light meant there was no longer a realistic prospect of conviction. And if you read online articles about it, it's pretty much he was this really good footballer. And how you wrote that scene with Hippolytus's friend it just made it feel so current because it mm-hmm. is what's happening now. It's like this person's an amazing athlete. So the actual yeah. shitty stuff gets glossed over yeah it, it is it's 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 so it's so depressing um at the time I was writing my first draft there was there were a lot of stories like that coming out of the US um and, and nothing seems to change very depressing I feel like when you bring this when you broach these topics in books it kind of hits harder in a way and it's easier to discuss what's happened to the fate of a character that you like rather than actually addressing the fact it's happening to real life people right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's, it is, it's very, it is, it is, it is a very sad, um, sad state of affairs, I want to say, but that doesn't seem quite right. Um, I think how you address things in the book it it hits hard and it's really impactful and I think it will affect people that read it in a positive way that that would be that would be something but again also Hippolytus's friends would also be young so they probably won't have thought of the consequences or the fact that you know, Frederick is another person. Mm. Yes, and I think yes, and and again, they're all they're all products of the same society, the same the same way of treating treating women as not quite people. I think as well. I think you see it in in Theseus's attitude too, because he's not young. He's, you know, he's about forty, and he's still he still doesn't understand really why this is such a big deal you know it was brief it was over can't she just go on and live her life and like why does she have to destroy his sons so I I guess I guess that just shows that it's 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 sown deep in the society I think you know if you if you think about the um the footballer he's he's such a good footballer the people writing the articles they probably aren't young you know they're there's still there's still um older people who who sort of shape shape the way that we the way that we think people people with a bit more you know they're not 16 anyway people with with enough experience to to know better but they don't another thing i found really interesting and that stood out to me is how you linked it back to the sort of like euripides at the end and so hippolytus has been found guilty and phaedra has killed herself and her unborn child has also died but now what and they need a story and the narrative that they decide on is what we know as the Euripides play and this is going to show that I'm really into true crime but Amanda Knox the evidence suggested that she wasn't guilty like the evidence suggested that Hippolytus was but it made for a much better story and that story just captured the imagination of the world and it was so much more sensationalized if we sort of look at the rumours that Pasiphae was impregnated by a bull, everyone knew that story. And people love it because it's it's gossipy and it's sensational. And yes. the story that they tell about Phaedra making it up, it's going to capture people more, I think. Yes, and they and they they come up with it quite quite cynically. This is this is what we need. We need a story that that has legs, really. And quickly as well. Mm. Yes. Yeah, it's really interesting you say specifically about Amanda Knox being sensationalised because I moved to Leeds 
in the September and by the November it was everywhere and every newspaper had a different sensational headline a different gossip a different mm. and and it it was ever and that's what I remember from my first couple of months at, at university it, it everyone had an opinion and it didn't it didn't really matter what the truth was because everyone kind of made up their own mind yeah just like I think would have happened with this after after Phaedra's death yeah an aspect that I found interesting in your version is that in your version Hippolytus is guilty and not only does he force himself on Phaedra but also afterwards other women and as I said earlier I studied Hippolytus and I've seen previous national theatre plays and he's nearly always innocent in fact I think he's always been innocent in everything I've seen or studied and Phaedra is used as this example of women lying and why you shouldn't believe women when they say that they've been attacked Mm. so so why did you decide that in your version she wouldn't be lying was it because of you know the me too movement yes yes so what I read was that it's it's very very rare for women to falsely accuse men of rape and it's a motif that turns up in a lot of plays and tv series and books but in real life it's very unlikely to happen and what's more likely is as we as we were saying there's just no evidence to prosecute and the actual process is so grueling women are unlikely to make any claim at all let alone a false one and I read I read a quote, and I'm sorry, I, I can't remember who said it, um, but it said that the opposite of a rape claim isn't a false accusation. It's a misunderstanding about consent. So women don't deliberately lie about rape, but sometimes men might believe that they have consent when they don't. And they might genuinely believe they have consent when they, when they don't. Um, and it was really important to me that I didn't want to put out yet another lying woman makes it all up story and contribute to that narrative that I think is actually quite harmful to women and makes it difficult for women to bring the um to bring claims because because the more the more we build up that body of of belief that that women lie about these things all the time the harder it is for everybody to to tell the truth there's one in the bible as well there's a false rape story which just seems quite shocking I don't know that one off the top of my head I'm trying to think what that is off the top of my head it's old testament isn't it it's i think i want to say joshua that's up to do joshua i'm going to quickly google it because i found it when there's because there's another false rape story in ancient greek myth to do with uh bellerophon and when i was reading up about that i found this Oh, it's someone called Pophetar's wife and oh. the captain of the Pharaoh's guard in the time of Jacob and his 12 sons. Obviously in the book of Genesis. It's, it's, it's Joseph. It's, uh, sorry. Um, I, I know this, I know this very well because yeah. it's, it's in the musical, um, Joseph mm. and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats. Mm. Sorry. There's a whole, yeah. there's a whole song that goes along with it. Yes. Yeah. And he rejected her sexual advance, advances yes. and she accused him and he was imprisoned. And it, there's the fact that even in the Bible, there are these stories is, yeah, it seems unnecessary for it to be there. Yes. But, but, but again, that's, these are, this is, this is what we, what we create. So, yeah. So, so coming back to the question, it was, it was really important to me that I didn't want to contribute to that that you know here's here's another another woman who who's made up a rape claim to benefit herself Fedra hears voices at night which she calls the night chorus and they make her want to help people or stand up for injustice do you think it's naive youth that made her ignorant to the fact that some of these women wouldn't have wanted her to rock the boat as much as they didn't want what was happening to them to happen they didn't want anything worse to happen Yes, definitely. Her her youth and and also her privileged position. And I think I think for most of most of the book, she has a, a very a very wrong idea of of how much 
how much power she has and what can actually be done to stop things. I mean, she she says to Xenothipi in the in the scene in Crete, even even in Crete, she says, you know, well, if if some man is bothering you, we'll just make it stop. And and Xenothipi is kind of rolling her eyes at her, like, that's really not how this works. It wouldn't stop. You can't, you can't stop this. It's too big. And we have a a scene with the night chorus that is especially quite powerful and it's about being the women of Athens and just listen to us you know he he forced himself on me I had no choice I didn't want to it happened to me and it happened to me and me and me was this quite difficult to write thank you yes yes there were a couple of those night chorus pieces that were quite hard to write because I think when you're writing those pieces you have to believe that these are real women and they're really suffering so that one that one and the one where they're talking about Heracles's visits those were yeah I I, I did find those quite hard to write and I don't like reading them again I'm not sure how you pronounce her name Can Kandaki um I sort of say it Kandaki but I made it up I made I made up a few of the the women's names because I wanted that idea of women's stories not coming down to us. So the men's names, the the characters that were made up, um, I took from a list of of you know popular popular names in in ancient Greece. But the women's names I made up. So I say Kandaki, but you know that's you can say it how you like, really. But her death was was horrible. Like, did that have to happen? Um. Well, from an from an improv perspective, yes. Um, Hippolytus's friends they couldn't do what they wanted to do to Phaedra. She still had protection as a royal. So, Kandeki was just a symbol to to them, to them, and and she didn't deserve any of it. And 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 that was that was something else that was very sad to to write. And again, when I was when I was doing edits, um, I always got a bit, I I. I genuinely got a bit teary when I got back to that bit because it's it's very it's very quiet and very sudden at the end and I'm quite sad about it but but I did I I always I always knew that she had to had she had to die because from a writer's perspective it's 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 part of stripping away from Fedra all of her innocence and her naivety um, and she feels a lot of responsibility for this death which, which I think how I think about it's understandable. it is, yeah, it, it is. It is. And I think I think that's actually I hadn't really thought about this, but that's kind of the, the complete opposite from a lot of the male characters who take no responsibility for anything whatsoever, who don't really care about anyone other than themselves. But but she does care. She genuinely cares. And Kandeki was the closest thing that she had to 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 a mother in in Athens. And um, and and she was trying to help her and and she put her out there. To, to give evidence which didn't really make any difference anyway so I agree it's very very sad R.I.P. Kandaki yes and talking about unnecessary deaths now I know that this is meant to symbolize a bad omen for the upcoming marriage but did the bull leaper really have to die in this horrific manner and I read the book before Charlotte and I messaged her oh my god something horrible just happened and it was because of this because that was gruesome Oh, and I, I did. I loved Helia because she was so bright and she was so full of life. And as you say, it's an omen. It's a sign. Nothing is right. Nothing in this marriage is as it should be. But what I'd like to think is that at least she died doing the thing that she loved the most. And she does say that the life prospects for retired bull leapers aren't great anyway. So she did. She did know what she was letting herself in for. It was very sad. Oh, she knew on the day as well, I think, because she's kind of like, mm. oh, we're supposed to meet the bull before. And then she doesn't. And in that moment, just before it happens, I think she knew. She knows. She knows. Everything is too rushed. Everything is not done properly. Was bull leaping an actual thing? Or is that something you've made up for? No, that one was an actual thing. Really? it It was done by both boys and girls. So that was why I really, really wanted to have a female bull leaper in there. Only to kill her off. The bull killed her off. (laughs) Your story also features Medea hiding out in the palace after the king's death. And Fedra asks her outright if she killed her children and why. 
Is this bravery or foolishness on Phaedra's behalf? Probably both. And I, I think it ties into that she thinks that she herself is untouchable. I mean, despite her reduced circumstances, she still thinks that she's protected. She's lived such a privileged life that she still thinks that no one's going to hurt her. And until until she is actually hurt, she she thinks she's she'll be all right. And Medea tells her that women are capable of far more than lies when they need to be. And in further conversations, that death isn't necessarily the worst fate. And in your opinion, is this kind of relationship that Phaedra builds with Medea and hearing her say these things, helping her to lose some naivety about how the world works? Yes, yes. I I saw Medea as being a foil to Phaedra, that she's older and she's more cynical. And, and some of that rubs off on her. She definitely listens to her. We couldn't have you here without asking about Ariadne. So we all know that Phaedra is the sister of Ariadne and Ariadne helps Theseus with the string to kill the Minotaur. And she goes off with him. And that's most of the stories we know. She gets, you know, most of the stories are she gets left on an island and then she meets Dionysus. But in your story, you had Theseus kill her so why did you choose to go down this route? And, and then we have Ariadne visit Phaedra with a warning. But why did you choose this creative device? So the scene where Ariadne visits Phaedra was actually the first scene that I wrote. And I, I always had it very clear in my head that, you know, sitting on the boat, the blue of the ocean, the sparkles, and this older discarded sister warning her younger, very naive sister and Theseus making the comment about how one sister would never shut up and the other one will never say anything. And I wanted to start that process there with, with Phaedra starting to understand more than she wants to and beginning with knowing deep down that her sister isn't really dancing on an island with the God of wine. And coming back to what we said earlier as well, Theseus isn't always nice or kind to those around them and he can be actually a dangerous person. And in her own way, Ariadne was also naive and made foolish mistakes. And they just didn't, they just didn't understand what they were dealing with. And I think, I think as well, actually, I also wanted some form of redemption for Ariadne because if, as, as I did, if you're going to say that the Minotaur is actually not the villain, you've also got to say, why, why does Ariadne help Theseus to kill him? And even even if he is even if he is a monster, why would she betray Crete to help someone that she's only she's only just met to kill this Minotaur, which puts her entire her entire family into jeopardy? And so I I did I did want her for all that she's for that now she can warn Phaedra. I wanted this idea that that actually she'd made mistakes in trusting Theseus as well, and it didn't end particularly well for her either she hadn't realized what he was capable of and she hadn't realized what was going to happen that's a really interesting question like I've never considered that like why would she risk so much like in the way that you've worded it she she did it for love yeah as much love as you can have from meeting someone very briefly but the fact she risked so much Mm. with her family and like killing her brother especially if in your story he's not a monster. I think that's, again, that's part of the, and I I do love the Greek myths and I love the Greek plays, but I think that is part of the problem is that the female character's motives aren't always got into very well. Why, why would you, why would you do that? Um, And I think, I think the reason that's given is it's, it's always some version of love. You know, why would, why would Helen leave her husband and her family and, and her daughter um, to go off with Paris oh well it was love mm. I think with Medea as well I really wanted to examine why would she kill her children because that is that is an awful awful thing to do and that goes against every every human nature that we have you know to kill your own offspring I think the myths can be very very flippant about it you know oh well she was she was a witch and she was a bad woman and she was cross because Jason went off with another woman so that's why she did it, which again, it's it's not the narrative that we tend to see in real life. So so I think 
I think that's one of the exciting things about working in in retellings today is that you can actually properly look at these characters' actions and say, why? Why are they doing some of these things? Well, that's the the conversation she has with Fedra, isn't it? And, and it opens Fedra's eyes of, well, actually, mm. maybe death isn't the worst thing that could happen to somebody. Mm. There's yes. also there's the question as well. Everyone always focused on the killing of the children and no one ever asked why. But then yeah. when Fedra asks why, she gets annoyed. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, she doesn't want her to ask why. She's but but I'm I'm not for, for all that I wanted to examine Medea and see why she did what she did. Um I think for me, I could I could never fully redeem her because she killed the children. Mm. Um I think, I think for me, I think the mistake that that she made is, and the mistake that Fedra, I think, doesn't make is that she killed the children. She should have killed herself. And I, I say this in the in the context of a of a Greek world where where people do commit suicide, you know, honor suicides and things like that. And and I think I think she sentenced herself to this awful afterlife of always being miserable. Of dragging herself from court to court, no, you know, nobody really wants her there. Nobody wants to get close to her. Nobody likes her. She doesn't like herself. She has to live with this awful thing that she's done, and and I, I do think that that was her her mistake was that she just she just wasn't she wasn't strong enough to have the courage of her convictions. Sorry, I, I just just to clarify, I do mean that in the context of a Greek world, I do not, yeah. I do not think that in in our current world that we should all go around killing ourselves because of any circumstances, but we also shouldn't kill our children. Definitely shouldn't kill our children. Mm. I have to bring up one line that I really really liked, and this is on page one hundred and fifty five, and this is Medea talking about Hippolytus. His devotion to Artemis irked me. Another goddess. One cannot move without stumbling over a god or goddess in Greece. And just with the amount of people that are children of gods and do things because of gods and goddesses, I just thought that line was hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. Medea is very, um, very cynical, very cynical about the gods. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. We have one of our favorite questions, which is quite silly, but it makes a bit lighter the, the subject. So we have, we have three retellings coming out this year. We have The Heroines, which is Fedra. We have Clytemnestra and we have Savage Beasts, which is Medea. So we're asking you, Shag, Marry, Kill, Fedra, Medea or Clytemnestra? Oh, I also want to say I love how anytime we ask this question, people take it really seriously. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're not judging your answers. It's okay. No, we've I've I personally have picked some questionable answers for other versions of this game. Um. So, are they are they the characters from the myth? Are we we're going back to the characters from the myth, not not necessarily um, the authors, the retelling authors' interpretations of them. Back to the myth. Back, Back to the myth. myth. And we asked Constanza this question as well. Oh, well. Um, so I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say marry Fedra because ultimately she didn't she didn't kill Theseus. And Clytemnestra killed um Agamemnon. So okay. marrying her would be a bad idea. <laughs> so I guess I guess I would say then. Oh, I think I'd kill Medea because she's the witch and Shag Clytemnestra, although now I'm wondering that didn't work out very well for anybody anyway, did it? But I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that. Kill Medea, she's the witch, and then she can't do any magic on you. Shag Clytemnestra, hope that keeps her happy enough that she's not going to kill you. And marry Fedra. And um, and and maybe maybe send your um, send your uh, children to go and your your sons to go and live somewhere else so she doesn't try and seduce them. <laughs> Have I? <laughs> I think that's a brilliant answer. It we, is. We both killed Phaedra. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs>
So what was so so what was your your other two options then? Uh, I did you marry Medea? Medea and shagged Clytemnestra. Yeah, obviously. Uh, uh, if you're loyal to Medea, then she's not gonna. She's gonna. She's great to have you. Like she'll have your back. That's true. And now um, you've got a witch on your side as well. Exactly. Constanza said, obviously marry Clytemnestra. That was she, she killed. And she killed Phaedra <laughs> also. Yeah. And I've got one for you as well, which is, we, let's go by your book this time. Theseus, this is horrible. Theseus, King Minos, that's her dad. Doesn't matter. It's he, not Fedra doing this. That's true. That is true. He's not my dad. <laughs> no, he, could be Dilfe, he could be Dilfy. You never know. So you've got Theseus, Minos, and Hippolytus, and Hippolytus from oh. you, your novel, which is horrible. I'd probably, not that it's my question, but I'd probably kill Theseus, um, Hippolytus. I would out, out of those three from your I'd novel. I would Hippolytus. Yeah, I mean, he's just a bit of a brat, isn't he? <laughs> I would marry Minos because he he treats his wife pretty well. And again, hope that you don't have any deformed children. Um, and he's got a stunning palace. Theseus, because, you know, he's he's very tall. He's very tall and he has piercing grey eyes. I think I would agree with you on think, that one. Yeah, I think I'd agree with you. And I think in the way you've written Hippolytus, I just wouldn't find him attractive. No, he's no. whiny. And he's about 16. Even if you aged him up. No, he's, he'd, always, he'd always be whiny. Yeah. He'd always be whiny. I still couldn't, regardless of how much you waged him up. <laughs> yeah, everyone takes this question so seriously. <laughs> I do love it. I love how serious people get into it. I do as well. And there seems to be such a resurgence of historical fiction. Sort of like it's been going on for a few years now. Yeah. Yes. Especially written by women and giving us these new voices. Do you think that this helps make classics more accessible to the wider masses? I do. I, I hope so. I also think, though, that it, it does place a responsibility on authors that, that we mustn't be snobbish about these stories. You know, we mustn't assume that everybody knows all the ancient sources. And if you don't, you know, if you don't understand this nuance, then, then you know, that's, oh, you shouldn't be reading these books. Because I, I I do think that we should be encouraging people that this could be their way in and, and really encouraging people to to start learning more and reading more about classics. And in your opinion, what do you think would help make classics more accessible and inclusive? So I, I know that there are projects to try and bring classics into more schools, which I think is great. I think encouraging more teenagers and young people to study classics is a good start. And... I think the more the more we engage, so so more more retellings out there, just making it part of our society. Um, podcasts like yours, which appeal to a to a wider audience, just you know everybody talking about it, I think is a really really good thing. And if someone was completely new to classics, which would you recommend? Would you recommend going with the retelling first? Would you recommend going to original source? I think that's a really hard question. For this reason, C.S. Lewis said don't read books about Plato to understand Plato, read Plato. And I think if you don't have the background, if you haven't read the original plays, I think it's really hard to see what some of the, the really great retellings, the Natalie Haynes, the Pat Barker, what are they pushing against? But so, so, my, so my initial impulse is to say, of course you must go to the, to the um, original sources. But then I say this as someone who did have the privilege of first studying classics at sixth form. And then I did a whole undergraduate degree in classical studies. So, so my journey was a guided journey. And I think it would be really difficult to read translated plays or poems sitting there by yourself with no background. So I think I, think I would suggest that you, someone would start with some of the really good and popular retellings like, like Jennifer Saint's novels, but perhaps with the intention of coming back to the ancient texts when they when they feel able to do so and i would also and i would also say that i think it's really important to read modern versions of the ancient text because i think i think sometimes people 
like they get hold of, you know, Victorian uh, translations and the English isn't even the way we would speak English anymore. So I think it's it's really important to have the, the modern punchy um, translations available as well. And on that note, I would highly, highly recommend Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey because I think that's just absolutely brilliant. One thing that we are really excited about is Stephanie McCarter's Ovid coming out later this mm. year. And I'm not just saying that because she's coming on to talk to us, but just having people doing these new fresh translations is is really exciting. Yeah. And female translations as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's yeah, just and and I think I think as well I want more female translations because I think that they engage with the words differently. Um again, you know, there's there's been quite a lot of discussion about that around how Emily Wilson interprets certain scenes and certain words in the Odyssey. But I also think that it just gets people talking about it, which again I think reaches a wider audience, you know, somebody who'd be like Oh, I was never really interested in in the Odyssey. Well, it's like, well, but there's this beautiful new translation. And can you believe that for the first time it's actually translated by a woman? Like, how can that be in 2000 years? And I think that will um that that generates a lot of interest, which is all to the good. I think your point about with the ancient text being guided through it is very interesting as well, because I remember studying the Odyssey at sixth form and I remember enjoying it but when I tried to use the exact same book mm. I, I picked up the exact same book that I had on the shelf um a few years later I found it quite hard going mm. yeah I agree I, I had something similar with the Aeneid that you think you think you know it really well but but with somebody pointing to bits and there's there's you know they're they're very dense there's a lot in there yes I yeah I agree I think it, I think it would be a hard ask of somebody who has who has no background in classics to just go here you go and by the way it's a poem as well um fab it's it's not it's not what we're used to reading at all but I do I do think that everyone should you know at some point be trying to read it because I th I think it repays the effort eventually so the book's not been long out in in America and Australia and it's at the point we're talking to you it's coming out in a couple of days yes. but we have to ask this question what other projects do you have coming up and do you have plans to rewrite any other myths uh so yes I'm working on my second novel which is also going to be published with Sphere it it is also a retelling but I'm moving away from Greece and towards Rome and it is it is early days but I am very very excited by it we're excited to see what it is being nosy about how this all works, did mm -hmm. you sit there and think, okay, now I've got this person that I want to do, I've done, I've done the heroines, or did someone suggest this person to you? So I came up with about four different suggestions of people that I would be able to work on for this for the amount of time and look into it in the amount of you know, give it give it the amount of depth that it needs, and and I think not not all characters will withstand that amount of um, scrutiny. Well, we'll we're very much looking forward to what you've got coming up. If it's even half as good as heroines, we will enjoy it. Thank you. That's really kind. Where can people go online to support you, to follow you, to find out about what's coming up? So I'm on I'm on both Instagram and Twitter at at Laura Shepperson. We will put that in our episode description so that people will be able to find you and follow you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And just genuinely, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about the heroines. We both loved it so much. And it's, like I said, it's so different from what I expected when I first started reading it. I thought it was just going to be another retelling, but you did it in such a different way. And I just... It gave us both so much. So thank you. I think people are going to love it. Thank, thank you so much. And thank you so much for, um, for having me on because this has been an absolutely brilliant, um, brilliant conversation. I love talking about these things. So um, it's, it's been really fun.
Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Laura. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast for more episodes. And if you're liking what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. Also, check out our website, www.demythpod.co.uk. She's been Charlotte. I've been Lauren. And today, we've been turning pages with Laura Shepperson. <laughs>